A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored anonymously by a dedicated listener in appreciation of Yehuda Geber and Jewish History Soundbites. So that's very sweet. Thank you. Uh, this uh, episode is Shemitah Part 2, or rather the observance of Shemitah, the history or the development of observ- Shemitah observance and the dispute surrounding it um, in modern times. Part 2 I had Part 1 recently, which described the Shemitah, primarily it was a description of the Shemitah uh, year of 1889, and especially with the Rothschild colonies and Baron Edmund James D. Rothschild, uh, his his um, his cut the colony of of Muscarid Batya Ekron, and the heroic uh, uh, um, perseverance of the settlers there, um, and the whole dispute surrounding it. What we're going to try to cover in part two is still wrap up some loose ends from the Shemitah year of eighteen eighty nine and um, different aspects of it, and then to progress in history through the next couple of Shemitahs, and then hopefully get to the next uh, stage, which was the famous dispute in the Shemitah year of 1910 uh, between Rabbi Avram Yitzchak Cook, who was then the rabbi of Yafo, and the Ridbaz, Rabbi Yaakov David Velovsky, who had recently... Uh, moved to Tzfas and was the rabbi in Tzfas and there was uh, the, the second stage of the dispute regards to the Heter Mechira about selling the land during the Shemitah year to a non-Jew and thereby observing the Shemitah that way. So that's what we're going to try to cover in part two. There's going to be several more parts, uh, part three, part four. There's going to try to cover in part three the arrival of the Chazanish to the land of Israel in the 1930s and the uh, agricultural settlements of the Apoyalei Agudis Yisrael and how they struggled to observe Shemitah. Part 4 will cover the uh, founding of the State of Israel and how that affected uh, the development of both the agricultural settlements, farming, Jewish farming, and of course the observance of Shemitah and the chief rabbinate. And then part five will hopefully get to uh, the founding of Karen Hashvias and uh, um, the settlements like Kaimemias, which were pioneers in 
Shemitah observance in the state of Israel in the 1950s. So there's a lot more to the story, and their sponsorships are available for the future episodes, so please be in touch with me about sponsorships for these future installments in the series, as well as any other sponsorships, of course. This series is exciting and all ready to continue, and of course is contingent on the remainder of them being sponsored, so be in touch with me about that. In order to prepare today's episode, I utilized, among other sources, but the best one by far, uh, stands in a league of its own, was um, the the late uh, A. Tom Henkin's essay on the topic, and he is so phenomenal in anything he ever wrote. Uh, unfortunately, it was so tragically taken away at such a young age. He was a, a scholar and a writer, and he was so thorough and clear. Of course, his book on the Aruch HaShulchan is a classic, but so many other things that he wrote, and just as this is one perfect example, this essay that he wrote, which is basically just a summary of the topic of the Heter Mechira and Rav Kook and the Ridbaz and Rav Yitzhak Khan Inspector, and it is so clear and so excellent. He was the primary source for today's episode, and and uh, and I'm going to liberally uh, cite it. Uh, it's available, of course, in Hebrew online for free, and um, long footnotes and <laughs> literally Anything I'm just going to say is just scratching the surface. If you want to see a more in-depth treatment of it, I highly recommend that you go through his essay on the topic. So we'll start actually with that, with the clarification of the Heter Mechira of 1889. And the primary personality associated with it was, of course, Ravitzikal Khan Inspector, the great Kovnarov. And he was a force to be reckoned with. So until today... Both the supporters and the opponents of the Heter Mechira, the, 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 the most important thing to grapple with is the fact that Rabbi Tzikal Khanan Spector seemingly lent his support for it. So the supporters uh, until today will continue to cite uh, the fact that he supported it, and the opponents, the detractors, will till today try to clarify and, and, and qualify and, and, and his reservations about the Heter Mechira and how it was limited exclusively for those circumstances at that time, and perhaps he was misinformed, and perhaps he was tricked, and perhaps this and that, and the, some of that history I want to explore now. So the, the Shemitah issue itself explodes once again, like I said, in 1910, in a long dispute between Rabbi Yaakov David Vilovsky, the Ridbaz, and Rabbi Avram Yitzchak Akayin Kuk. Uh, the Ridbaz, like I said, was a rabbi in Sfas. Uh, Rav Kuk was still the rabbi of Yafo and the Moshavot. That was his official position. The new Moshavot in the general Yafo area and even beyond is before he went to Yerushalayim. Uh, the Ridbaz described in his opinion as to how uh, in, when he wrote up his, there was a lot written about it, both in, in correspondence and then later as pamphlets written at the time. Um, so the Ridbaz gives an insight as to how he saw the 1889 dispute. Um, the, descri- the Ridbaz describes his opinion as to how Rabitzik Al-Kharan Specter was maneuvered um, into by disinformation uh, that, it, that, that it was pikuach nefesh. It was the, the lives of the settlers in the agricultural settlements were at risk. And and they were and Yitzhak Khan was essentially tricked into giving the heter uh, in 1889. Um, and anyways, the Ridbaz adds on 
the 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 Ridbaz adds on that anyways everyone else should be Shulay Diskin and Shmuel Salant, the Beis Halevi, the Netziv, and others were opposed to um, giving this Heter Mechira. So his emphasis in in this writing in 1910 is that 21, 22 years earlier, Rabitzkel Khan Inspector was tricked. And anyways, also he adds on and emphasizes that it was only a hairas shah, a temporary dispensation, specifically for that Shemitah of 1889, and not to be extrapolated from that, that we can further use this dispensation in, in, in further down in history, and other Shemitahs down the road. The question is, is this description of the Ridbaz a, a historically uh, full picture uh, in the context of the Shemitah of 1889 uh, uh, or not? Um, so, Something that is historically disputed until today is Rebitz Golchanan's support for the Hetter. Since he was the undisputed greatest Torah leader and halachic decisor of his generation and universally respected by everyone across the Jewish world, so his opinion has to be reckoned with. So naturally, um, the supporters never cease to cite Rebitz Golchanan's support for the Hetter, Mechira, uh, while the opponents of the Hatter Mechira don't cease to explain it away. Um, and uh, as I mentioned in part one, I veer away from halachic discussions, uh, so I'm not going to get into the intricate, uh, finer points of the halachic uh, depth of the issue, but rather I just want to point this out as an interesting historical phenomenon. Several months prior to Rabbi Tzakochanan's passing in 1896, which was shortly prior to the onset of the next Shemitah year, Rabbi Yitzchak wrote in more than one letter, and actually several letters of his correspondence to different addressees, that though he had created the Heter Mechira for the 1889 Shemitah year exclusively, and not for future ones, the situation of Pikuach Nefesh in the agricultural colonies is still relevant now as then, and possibly even more so, since there are more colonies and more settlers, and therefore he feels that the Pikuach Nefesh factor would necessitate the continuation of the Heter Mechira for the upcoming Shemitah. And then he emphasizes that this is again only temporary for the coming Shemitah and should not be taken as a permanent leniency for the future Shemitah years. So, um, th- you know, so the question is, is was Rebetzikah Hanan misinformed about the situation of the colonies and the colonists and their situation of Pikuach Nefesh? And again, this is a hotly debated topic until today, because it seems that seven years later, Rebetzikul is again emphasizing the Pikuach Nefesh based on the information he received, to say that he only received misinformation for seven years straight. It's, it would be hard to believe, but, uh, you know, he, 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 and there's vast correspondence. In other words, his sources are from everywhere, from the land of Israel, from the colonists, from different rabbis, from the opponents, from the supporters, from Poland and Lithuania, Russia, from France, from the people of of, of the uh, of the Baron, Baron Rothschild. It's uh, and and uh, and it's over the course of two shemitas, right? He, he passes away shortly before the onset of the next shemitah in 1896. Um, so, it, but it's a hotly debated topic until today. It's something akin to the Vilna Gain. Was he misinformed about the, the Hasidic movement when he wrote and signed on his excommunications, which I referred to in another episode way back. But it's a similar type of thing that everyone likes to talk about and discuss and, and argue about until today, about was he misinformed? Should he be misinformed? Maybe he wasn't misinformed. 
But we should not have been misinformed and all that. And uh, it's it's just an interesting uh, topic of discussion. The next question that we have to address is, would he have changed? Would Yitzhak Khan have changed his opinion had he been in the land of Israel? Because the next claim is, is that he was far away in Kovna, in the Russian Empire. And he did not see the colonies. He never met the colonists. He didn't see the circumstances firsthand. Would he have changed his opinion had he done so? So here the circumstantial evidence was, was that we have is not very helpful. Why? Because Rabbi Mordechai Gimpel Yaffe, who, became, who was a, an opponent of the Heter Mechira, he became a stronger opponent of the Heter Mechira when he moved to the land of Israel during the first Aliyah and saw the colonies up close. On the other hand, the Aderes, Rabbi Leo David Rabinovich Toomim, uh, supported the Heter even more so once he moved to the land of Israel and he saw the colonies up close. So again, here we have two great people, two great rabbis, and when they get to see the reality on the ground up close, they each uh, strengthen their opinions, one as a greater opponent of the Hatur Mechira and one as a greater supporter of the Hatur Mechira. So it's very hard to know and speculate what would have been in Rebitzkel Khanan's case. Another interesting historical tidbit is that Rebitzkel Khanan corresponded with Reb Shmuel Salant and Rabbi Shuleib Diskin, who were opponents of the Hatur Mechira, strong opponents relatively of the Hatur Mechira, he corresponded with them in real time about his Hatur. And they uh, were very upset about his Hatur Mechira. And they wrote, wrote to him as such, and they even accused him in these letters of receiving misinformation about the facts on the ground. And he responds to them that he is well informed and he refuses to back down uh, about his Hatur. So, this is uh, a really a contentious issue uh, about what, what are we going to do about Rebitzikal Khanan. And I wish to emphasize once again that we throw around the term the Heter Mechira as if it's one and the same from then until today. The halachic intricacies of how the Heter Mechira is carried out varied at different times in different correspondence, and Rebitzikal Khanan's Heter Mechira may be different than the one that was discussed by Rav Kook, and maybe different than the one discussed today in the modern state of Israel, and I'm not getting into the halachic ramifications of it, and you should consult the halachic people about these details, because they probably have a lot to say about it. Um, and that will definitely complement the historical narrative and how it developed over the course of the century, because the term Hatur Mechira may itself have changed over time as the halachic uh, um, um, intricacies of how the Mechira was played out and carried out and how the sale was done to the non-Jew and which land was done and who owned the land and who worked on the land during that Shemitah year. All these details are, of course, very important uh, from the halachic point of view. And, uh, and, 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 and should be very interesting. So if we, you know, the, the in last time in the 18, in part one, when I, when I discussed the 1889 Shemitah year, we focused in what my opinion is the primary story, which is the farmers themselves. Um, and I discussed at length the Maskarit Batya uh, colonists. Here, I, I just want to wrap up a bit on the background among the differing opinions in the rabbinate and in the media, what was going on then, uh, um, in, back in Eastern Europe and in and in the uh, and in the land of Israel at the time, um, Reb Shmuel Malhiver, uh, the head of the Chayyim movement, the lovers of Zion movement, he wrote in a letter that in Warsaw a bezdin of three was convened uh, about the Heter Mechira, which was consisted of him himself, Reb Shmuel Malhiver, and Rabbi Shua Trunk of Kutna, and Rabbi Shmuel's anvil Klepfish of Warsaw. Later on, he writes, Rabbi Tzikachanan added his opinion, and also Ramadcha Eliasberg of Baisk. And he emphasizes there that the Sephardic rabbis of Yerushalayim, 
supported it as well, since it was crucial to obtain support from local rabbis who lived in Yerushalayim, who lived in the land of Israel. And that was the Rishon Letzion, the chief, the chief rabbi of the Sephardic community, Rabbi Yaakov Shol El Yashar, and other members of his Beit Din, his rabbinical court, including also another prestigious Sephardic rabbi, Rafael Meir Fanajel. Now at the time, much issue was made about the Sephardic uh, Rishon Letzion and, and, and other Sephardic great rabbis supporting the Heter, with the supporters citing this support uh, of the Sephardic uh, chief rabbinate as the ultimate victory, while the opposition either ignored the Sephardic rabbis altogether, or even worse, dismissed their opinion of these great Sephardic Torah leaders because, you know, they're not Ashkenazi, so so we don't have to reckon with their opinion and value it very much. A kind of sad situation, actually, but it's an important historical tidbit as well. Interestingly enough, another rabbi in Lithuania who... Uh, initially supported it, Rabbi Gazander Meishe Lapidus, who was the, rav, uh, the rabbi in Raisin. He initially supported in a prior Shemitah, in the Shemitah of 1882, before it even was a major issue. But then he backs down from his heter, the heter supporting the heter mechiri, because he states that the majority of rabbis were against it, and he did not wish to rule against the majority. A very interesting uh, perspective as well. Um, he, uh, and then, and then, when Reb Mordechai Eliashberg, who comes out in support of the Hetter Mechir in 1889, so there's all kinds of other accusations thrown around. And it seems that that um, that uh, the uh, the uh, the uh, opponents of the Hetter uh, did not like it that that Reb Mordechai Eliashberg was uh, supporting it, and and then Reb Mordechai Eliashberg makes the counter accusation. He said the reason that the opponents especially the opponents, the local ones, the ones in Yerushalayim, the ones they're opposing it is because they're attempting to destroy the new agricultural colonies because they're, they're nervous that, the, that the, the, uh, the publicity generated for these new colonies of Rothschild and the funding that they might receive from the Jewish diaspora in Eastern Europe will be detrimental to the fundraising of, for the Chalukah money of the old Yishuv. And this, and, and, and he was vehemently, uh, the people wrote against him because of that. And it was, it was, a, it was very, a very strong accusation that he was making and that was, touched a very sensitive chord about the Chalukah money. And, uh, and, uh, and this actually became a theme that's returned to in many other contexts in the next half a century. It doesn't disappear. Here we're talking specifically about Shemitah. But for the next half a century, much of the opposition to the Zionist movement itself uh, from the old Yishev in Yerushalayim, was less ideological than we would tend to believe and we would want to believe. And a lot of it was economics. It was related to uh, how the uh, the Karen Kayemet and the JNF and all these new Zionist organizations, because they're fundraising for the new Yishev in the land of Israel, it's going to be detrimental to the fundraising for the Chalukah money of the old Yishev. And it was a, a, you know, a dispute about the... Uh, the, the, who's going to get the bigger pie, uh, share of the pie of of the fundraising, and that that that's going to play a role later on. So it's interesting that the first time it comes up is actually in regards to shemitah. Um, there's also the role that um, that that maskilim such as Meishaleib Lillianblum play a role in the in the dispute and articles in the in Hamelitz and in other newspapers about how and 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 their you know somewhat anti-religious, uh, anti- anti-tradition altogether, um, you know, th- that adds to the, to the fray, which makes 
traditionalists, even rabbis who would maybe have supported the Heter, but the fact that it was being promoted by these anti-religious elements uh, in order to, uh, in order to, uh, um, in, in a way, do away with Shemitah observance in, in the, from their perspective, from, from people like Lillian Boom's perspective. So it made, it goes into the religious secular divide. Uh, Eitam Henkin cites an incredible amount of pamphlets which were published on the topic by different rabbis across Europe in support and against so many personalities, some of whom, who I never even heard of, uh, were involved. Aside from these published halachic pamphlets, the Hebrew and Yiddish newspapers, the press, was utilized as a platform by many rabbis to publicize their opinions. Uh, they would pay for advertising space to, to publicize their opinion on the issue and weigh in with their views as well. It was truly, as Sam Finkel of, of the book that I mentioned in the last part of Rebels in the Holy Land, he refers to the settlers of Mazkarit Batya that they were caught in the crosshairs of history. Uh, they, these people were simple, um, very deeply religious, and, and they were, again, at the same time, working the land, farmers in the Holy Land, uh, and they are in the middle of this international dispute with some of the greatest rabbis in the Jewish world, well beyond uh, what, they, what they had anticipated. It's almost like the, the, the original Jane Roe of, of Roe versus Wade, and how... Uh, you know, one small anonymous person can become the center of a huge international dispute, so to speak. Um, so what happens is, is that the Ritzikah inspector passes away in 1896, um, and that that becomes a major issue, and then everyone has to start speculating, what would he have said, right? And that, that also becomes a major thing. What would Ritzikah Khanan have said? What would Rav Cook have said? Today people like to say he would have said, he would have... In general, it's a big thing in in history. If he were alive today, he would have said this, you know. And and we love we love to say that because we can always assume and we can make up whatever we want uh, about personalities who are no longer around. What they would have said in this uh, new historical circumstance, um, but we only know what they did say. We don't know what they would have said, so it's hard, kind of difficult to speculate. Um, the way it was seen in the context of that time was a way of, of saving the Yishuv. In other words, this was a qualified leniency, some, sometimes even without a heter mechira altogether. Some, some, uh, some of the Paiskim who weighed in on the issue said even, even a mechira is not necessary. Um, and it was a, considered a shas hadchak, an emergency uh, situation. Um, and, uh, and, 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 that's, and that's what it surrounded at that time. Um, by the way, Rothschild didn't disappear either, uh, even after 1889. He lived uh, lived on until 1934. He passed away in France in 1934. In fact, in 1954, his his remains were brought to be reburied in the land of Israel, where they are, and near Zichron Yaakov, which is named after him, and near Binyamina, which is named after him, and other places that he was involved with. Um, so he he um, he continues to have play a role until 1934 in supporting the colonies and one of the great architects of the new yeshiv in in the long term as well um, and his support for the all these colonies and building and and and, and for all this uh, settlement amazing that one person what he was able to fund and accomplish um, uh, other ones who opposed. The the Heter Mechir included Reb David Friedman of Karlin, many others, Arach HaShulchan, uh, Reb Chil Michal Epstein, um, Reb Lazer Gordon of Tells, but many of these were not public about it uh, at all, and their correspondence on the topic was not published until years later. So they can't be seen as having played active roles in the actual public debate, but rather as those who 
were on the side of the opposition without having played a role in the actual debate. So, 1889 is the first volley, we said. We come to the second round in 1910. The, the two Shemitahs in between, 1889 and 1910, it was much quieter. It was not a major public dispute as it, as it was. There were those who supported it, it a, some sort of heter, Bechira, again, a very qualified, a very with a lot of reservations, as a one-time thing, and, and there were others who remained opposed to it. And then we come to 1910. In 1910, um, the, the, it breaks out a new, the reason it comes to the fore again is because it breaks out a dispute between Rav Kook and, and the Ridbaz. Uh, Rav Kook had cited his father-in-law, the Aderes, or Leo David Rabinovich Ta'omim, his support, which was his father-in-law, his support for the Hetem Mechira in the earlier Shemitah of 1903. The Aderes, uh, going back to that Shemitah of 1903, supported a limited Heter, and it was much more limited in scope than the Heter of 1889 of Rabbi The one that the Aderes supported was much more limited. This limited Heter was based on none other than, drumroll please, Rabbi Yeshua Leib Diskin. Incredibly enough, the one who was a major opponent of the Heter in 1889. And he, the, he, as the, he, he, he was opposed to it in 1889, but he supported, it seems that he supported a very limited heter in the Shemitah year of 1896. And this was for Reb Naftali Halevi, who was the rabbi of Yafo at the time. And the Adaris, uh, who, who uh, goes ahead and bases on Rabbi Shulev Diskin in the, in the next Shemitah year of 1903, he does it with the support of Reb Shmuel Salant, who was essentially his boss as the rabbi of Yerushalayim. And, and Reb Shmuel Salant, incredibly enough, was also an opponent of the 1889 Heter. And here, there's this support for a more limited Heter uh, in 1903. So, what's interesting is that there's this limited and qualified Heter was seemingly receiving much more widespread support, or at least less opposition uh, than than the 1889 Heter had received. Another one who who who, who now supported it was also Rabbi Yitzchak Yaakov Reines, uh, the the uh, the Rosh Hashiva in Lida, the Rabbi and Rosh Hashiva in Lida, and 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 founder of the Mizrahi. Uh, Henkin, uh, in that same essay, he count he actually counted all the ones who were opposed and the ones who supported, and he found that the opinions were pretty balanced from 1889 to 1910. In other words. There was an almost equal amount of supporters and opponents if we would just count the numbers of this Heter Mechira. What happens is, is that the Ridbaz, he manages to tip the scales in 1910, uh, though, when he generates a lot of publicity against the Heter Mechira, and he has many leading rabbis sign against it. Uh, another uh, another uh, aspect worth checking is the reservations expressed by the supporters. In other words, even the ones who supported it did with a lot of reservations or with several reservations, many of them citing extenuating circumstances and not some sort of general blanket leniency to be utilized in all instances. Uh, in Rav Kook and the Ridbaz enjoyed a very warm uh, relationship. They had a very close friendship, actually. Whenever the Ridbaz was in Yafo, he would be the Rav Kook's personal guest. He would stay in his home. Rebetzin Cook would prepare him his meals. And they enjoyed a very, very close and personal relationship. It's not one of those disputes that it was just a correspondence or in the media or something like that. It's some, a very, very, two very great men and very close uh, personal uh, friendship before that. 
And after that, the Ridbaz was 20 years his senior, uh, 20 years older than Rav Kook, which explains also some of the sharpness in the correspondence, but it's also surprising how close they were given how much older the Ridbaz was and how much respect they had for each other and how much respect the Ridbaz expressed towards Rav Kook, who was so many years his junior. Um, But they still go to war. Uh, And the Ridbaz writes a recap of his version of the 1889 Heter, which I already uh, described, and Rav Kook disputes that recap, and then they dispute about what to do about the upcoming Shemitah, 1910, and then many other rabbis around the world choose sides. Um, they remained remained uh, friends even afterwards. In fact, when the Ridbaz passed away, Rav Kook went to Tzfas uh, to arrange the Ridbaz's affairs. That's how close they were. Uh, they have this. They had this extensive correspondence. Uh, Shemitah, a very sharp disagreement, very written very sharply in very sharp terminology. But it's interesting to note that this was an exceptional story as it was actually a halachic dispute in all of its sharpness where the primary protagonists maintained the respect for each other on a personal level. Truly a dispute for the sake of heaven. A L'shem Shemayim uh, dispute. And they remained uh, friends. There's a fascinating letter of the Ridbaz addressed to Rav Kook, and he writes that it's terrible that there are those who are writing disrespectfully against the rabbis of Yerushalayim who are opposed to the Heter Mechira, and that there are other, and that, and it's equally terrible that there are others who are writing disrespectfully against you. In other words, against Rav Kook. And he says it's a disgrace. He complains that the media has gotten involved and there's extremists on either side, which again sounds familiar to the disputes in the contemporary world. He continues writing by pointing out that Rav Kook is dear to him, but Shemitah is dear to him as well. So the Ridbaz says, I'm confused, because both of you are dear to me. The, both Shemitah and, and, uh, and uh, Rav Kook. He emphasizes that both he and Rav Kook wrote what, what, what he emphasizes that both, what, what both he and Rav Kook wrote in regards to Shemitah are both words of Tyra. And then he says, I question your opinion, and you question my opinion, yet we still love each other. And, uh, and, and this is how it's supposed to be. I sign with tears, Yaakov David Ridbaz. That's how he ends off the letter. Very fascinating letter. And how beautiful it is when great men have a dispute. In 1913, a few years later, Rav Kook uh, writes to the Ridbaz shortly before his passing. And he writes, despite all of the differences of opinion between us about Shemitah, we still love, love each other as it should be. So, it was a terrible dispute, and it was very, very sharply written at the time. The two of them, and then beyond the two of them, what, how it was in the media, and how there was all kind of Pashkevilan written and published and spread around uh, all over, both in Yerushalayim and then all over the land of Israel and all over the Jewish world in Eastern Europe. It really exploded all over. Um, but yet, on the other hand, it, it was, um, it was uh, never at a personal uh, uh, level in the long term. Another thing that has to be taken into context in, in, in this regard is, is, is what was happening in, in, as far as the Aliyah, the second Aliyah. The new Moshe vote of the second Aliyah is an important difference between the 1889 dispute and the 1910 dispute. In the 1889 dispute, the Maskilim and the secular of members and leaders of the Chayvei movement were pushing for the Heter Mechira. Why? Because they wanted that Shemitah shouldn't be a hindrance to the colonists who were, for the most part, religious. By the time the 1910 Shemitah year rolls around, the secular, both secular leaders in the Zionist movement, by now is the Zionist movement, as well as the, the settlers of the 
Second Aliyah, they preferred that the Heter Mechira be opposed. They wanted it to be opposed altogether. Why? Because in this way, they'd get rid of the rabbis altogether. They would say, look, the rabbis are all extreme. The rabbis uh, are, are, are against the new Yishuv. The rabbis are against us secular uh, ones who are establishing the Kibbutzim, establishing the Moshevot, the new agricultural settlements. And this way, we can get rid of the rabbis and all traditional observance of the mitzvahs of the Holy Land in the new Moshevot and Kibbutzim. In other words, this was a new generation. This was a new type of settler in the second Aliyah, which was like I described in the episode of the five Aliyot recently, was a much more secular in its form. The colonists of the first Aliyot were for the most part religious. And, uh, and, and here, they're for the most part irreligious, uh, non-observant. So the supporters of the Heter Mechira, like Rav Kook, they point out that this was the last attempt to have any rabbinical influence in the rising Moshevot agricultural settlements. Uh, and, 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 and that's why it's of utmost importance, because the, the, the whole dynamic has changed as far as who the people were, the potential Shemitah observers or non-observers were. Um, and that's the crucial difference between the first and second Aliyah that has to be seen in context as well. Um, in a few years later, in 1913-1914, the Ridbaz passes away, World War I comes, the British Mandate arrives, it's no longer the Ottoman Turkish Empire, the founding of the Rabbanut Harashit follows closely in its wake by Rav Kook and his move to Yerushalayim, and therefore it's a seemingly a victory for the Heter Mechira. Um, other people like Rabbi Yosef Engel and the Avnei Nezer of Sachachov had supported a qualified Heter Mechira as well. And therefore, for the interim, it seemed that Hector Mechira was the wave of the future and was going to have a victory. But that was not to be the case completely, because what we're going to see in part three is, is that what happens is, is that there's these early settlements in the 1930s of the Pele Gris Yisrael, the arrival of Chazanish and a resurgence of, the, uh, of, of another form of Shemitah observance that would not necessitate the Hector Mechira, a strict uh, traditional Shemitah uh, 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 observance without a Heter Mechira, and, and a opposition, a renewed opposition to the Heter Mechira, and that we'll see in part three. So this is Yehuda Gabra Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGabra.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.